Ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen. We love movies with Gordon Hayden. This film blew me away. So that's against the rules, and you can't sit with us. Did we just become best friends? Yep. Hasta la vista, baby. And the winner is... We Love Movies with Gordon Hayden. Spin. Hello, and you are very welcome along to this week's We Love Movies. Interesting weekend at the cinemas in that there isn't a load of big releases. And reason for that is because of the pandemic a lot of big productions were put on hold. So that's why we're not seeing the slew of films coming out week after week after week. So this week, it's really all about streaming and what is dominating a lot of the streaming services. So we'll be getting into that. We have a roundup of all the big movie stories from the week, one of which is about Ezra Miller. Uh, he's uh, given a, a statement in regard to going into therapy. This is the big PR campaign Warner Brothers are hoping now to steamroll in um, with the, the likes of The Flash now as their big prized asset for next uh, year. They don't want that to go off course, and hence why they need to do a bit of a, a bit of a, a bit of a publicity campaign around Ezra and make sure that people do go to see this film. So we'll be chatting about that too, and the Predator series because Prey has been a massive success for Disney Plus and Hulu in the states, but the franchise in general has had so many ups and downs. We'll be getting into all that too. So lots to come on this week's We Love Movies. We Love Movies with Gordon Hayden on Spin. Hello, and you're very welcome to We Love Movies. My name is Gordon Hayden. I'm joined, as always, by Andy McCarroll, Olivia Fahey, and Chris Wasser. Guys, good to have you back. And Chris, welcome back. Chris has been as Holliers. Um, guys, we're going to kick off with some movie news. And Ezra Miller, Olivia, the, do you think the timing of this is very apt? Because there's been an awful lot of uh, very, I would imagine, very nervous executives at Warner Brothers wondering what they're going to do with The Flash, bearing in mind a lot of the film has been shot, it's currently being edited, it's full of special effects, and the man leading the charge in it, Ezra Miller, he's constantly getting himself into trouble with an awful lot of some serious allegations about his behaviour, especially in Hawaii, and I think as well, there's been some other crazy stories surrounding him and a, and a single mum and her kids that have been... Uh, uh, he's currently housing them, I think, on uh, on his farm. But even that sounds very, very dodgy. But anyway, we'll get into all of this in just a sec. But um, he's currently seeking treatment. So what more do we know? So essentially, he released a statement to Variety to sort of say that he's like, I've come to terms with the fact that I'm suffering from complex mental health issues. He's now going to go and do some treatment and... He apologized essentially for alarming and upsetting everybody by his past behavior. Now, does that excuse some of his past behavior? It certainly does not, because, you know, especially with allegations that have been coming out um, from like some young people's parents have actually been filing lawsuits against him and things like that as well. Um, so it, he's not definitely not out of the woods, but it certainly seems that he is going to try his best to save his career because up until this point, Warner Brothers had been rumored to have three plans in place for the flat. And essentially, this is how they were going to deal with the situation. Uh, option one was the one that clearly they're going for, as is Miller, is that he's going to seek professional help. And then he might do like limited press for The Flash next year um, and he will be permitted to do so. But if he had refused uh, any treatment, then he would have been cut out of all of the press before the, the film came out. And then he would also have been recast in 
both the Flash once it was post-release, um, but also for any other upcoming works with Warner Brothers as well. So whether the Flash had been cast in other productions that were currently in pre-production or any other, basically any other series that were coming up with the the thing itself. So yeah, the, he's clearly just trying to salvage some sort of thing for his career. But the thing is that is he now has to keep his nose clean until the release of the film in order to save Grace, because otherwise they will just turn around and shelve the film a la, you know, Batgirl. So the two of them, Batgirl and The Flash should be sitting on the shelf being just like, whoop, there goes our chances of uh, cinematic glory. But uh, it's just... It's a bit of a mess. Um, and they did say that they couldn't reshoot it because he is essentially in every single scene as well. So that option also, is completely out the window. And it's also a $200 million film. Like that's just the budget alone for the, the shooting and the editing. And then you just put marketing costs on top of that. Like this is a hugely expensive film. And also it's a film that is going to offer a big gear change and uh, course correct where DC is going, because if anyone's familiar with the the story of Flashpoint, it does allow for some musical chairs to happen with some of the characters, um, some of the the big name characters within the DC world, which could see some new faces and offer a, a fresh lick of paint. But Andy, I would be shocked if Ezra Miller, it, 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 say he keeps his nose clean and the film comes out, I would be shocked if he is uh, kept on as the Flash, because he's such an erratic individual, you wouldn't know what is going to happen next. What do you think will happen if you were to look into your crystal ball? Do you see him continuing on as the Flash, even if he plays it straight? No, I think they're going to try and revamp as much of the the DCU as they can because of all of this going on. And he's not, it's not like Johnny Depp in the Fantastic Beast series we're going to talk about later, where he's a big star, where people are going to be clamoring, bring back Ezra Miller. I think everyone wants a shot of him at this point. And just as well with this film, if they had the option to get rid of him, they could have. But like you said, he's in every scene. In some cases, he's in the film twice because he's playing two versions of the same character. So it's not as if you could just cut out, you know, a 10 minute performance. He's in every scene, in some cases, in every scene twice. But it's a weird one to tackle because it's not like, like let's say with Hugh Grant a couple of years ago when he was caught with his uh, you know, discretion indiscretion, shall we say, he went on the charm offensive on all the talk shows, got that out. I think this is more akin to something like Mel Gibson, where you're just waiting for the next, you know, shoe to drop and something else to go wrong. And you can't do a really somber, you know, let's have a really serious conversation about mental health if he's gonna go down that route when at the end of the day you're selling a superhero film because that those two things don't really go in hand. You're selling you a fun summer blockbuster, but all the while you're having, you know, there's quite serious allegations going on in the background. This guy trying to rebuild his image. I'd say the second the flash roll credits on that, you're like, you know, get that SOB off my set for good. Yeah, I have a feeling he won't be around for much longer. Chris, um, for those that are in the dark around Ezra Miller, are you part of that in that sense that you wouldn't be uh, familiar with all the allegations? Or do you think the mainstream audience, as it were, would be familiar with what he's uh, been carrying on over the last few months? Well, I think a mainstream audience might be unfamiliar with what Ezra, what films Ezra Miller has actually made. You know, they're not as such, you know, th- this is not a household name we're dealing with. It's not like, you know, the case of Johnny Depp or Mel Gibson or any other kind of, you know, troubled movie star where you're thinking, well, I know what sort of work they have behind them. With Ezra Miller, you know, their output over the last few years, it's been, it's been quite patchy. I mean, they have popped up in the Fantastic Beasts franchise, but name, you know, three or four of the films that they've been in, you, you, you would struggle. Um, I think a lot of people put actually, a lot of people uh, like myself put far too much stock in Ezra Miller at the beginning of their career. And I don't think they've always delivered 
delivered. I think just going back to something that Olivia and Andy talked about in terms of um, the question, uh, the, the 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 stress and the and the and the question of all, of of whether they could reshoot Ezra's scenes in the Flash, they absolutely could. They definitely could. But I think it's something like Scott Mendelson was writing about this a couple of weeks back that it's probably just not worth it to Warner. I mean, this is the problem that could be worked around if you had a guarantee that the Flash was maybe going to make a billion or $1.23 billion, you know, Top Gun Maverick sort of money or Marvel sort of money. But it's probably a little bit, you know, it's it's a bit of a, a risk spending maybe 30, 40 million reshooting if it's only going to make DC sort of money. And what I mean by that is the DC films, they, they're not... They're not Marvel pictures. These things, you know, don't make loads of money back and they don't make, you know, double the, the, the they, they basically, they don't make Marvel, uh, so, so they don't do Marvel business at the box office. So it is a bit of a risk. Um, I don't think it's going to be shelves though, because, uh, and, and how, how, how much of a pity is it as well that the, the, the two films that Michael Keaton is back for Batman are, are in trouble. I think that's that's such a shame. But I think the uh, the the idea of of, of shelving of, of just leaving it on the shelf, I don't think that's going to happen. But I also don't think that Ezra Miller will be back as the Flash. So the whole thing is very complicated. I actually couldn't even tell you all of the things that Ezra Miller has been accused of doing. I mean, at one stage he he was uh, accused of assaulting a couple in a in a karaoke bar because they sang Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper "Shallow," and he didn't want anyone else singing that song. Uh, and another uh, issue is this: uh, you know, he, they they were charged with uh, breaking into someone's house and stealing their booze um they were also uh, uh, there was this story about you know breaking into a hotel room and threatening to kill a couple it's all been very very confusing and very sad and i don't see it ending well despite the fact that they are seeking treatment so i don't really know what way this is going to go gordon yeah it's a it's a tough one to see how it's all going to play out but one thing is for sure that dc property olivia is something that is very much part of the new ceo david zaslav's uh he's the new uh, warner brothers discovery ceo it's it's the jewel in their crown, and with flat the flash, is there a lot of pressure though? As m- they need to get this right, one hundred percent, and especially because the Flash TV series is now coming to an end, and it is actually due to come to an end just before the Flash film comes out. So there has actually been a lot of calls from fans that they actually want Grant Gustin to be taking on the role uh, from here on out. Now, whether that's actually going to work, considering they've always said that their TV universe and their cinematic universe are two totally different things. Um, But, you know, the timing of it is a little bit sus. I'm not going to lie. This Flash season, um, season nine is going to be their last. It has been the longest running series on the CW and was by far, I think, actually the best of the CW bunch. And so, of course, it being top dog on telly, you know, you'd want it to do well um, on the, in the cinema as well. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of pressure on it, whether or not it's going to actually pan out. And yeah, just as Chris said, like, how awful would it be if both of the films that Michael Keaton was in actually got shelved? Like, it would just be so awful for not only the fans, but also for him. Like, it must be a bit of an ego bruiser for one of them already to be like popped away. So, yeah, I'd say they're they're under a lot of pressure from a lot of different angles that they need to actually get this out but also it needs to be good to justify all of this crap they just need to keep um ezra miller i think they just need to keep him under house arrest in the betty ford clinic or somewhere like that just until the release of the flash but let us move on but we're still going to stay with all things warner brothers because mads mickelson andy he recently giving an interview regarding his role in uh, the third fantastic beast film the secrets of dumbledore which even though it scored the best uh, reviews so far within the, this prequel series, which isn't saying much 
Really? Because it's been, yeah, I, I know it's, yeah, it's been a bit of a meh kind of series because I think so far it has made something like 400 million worldwide. And the, the, the previous film, The Crimes of Grindelwald, made over 600 million, something like that, 640 million. And Warner Brothers weren't particularly happy with that figure. They felt it should have done more because there were, I think there was some were building it up to be like the Empire Strikes Back of that Fantastic Beast series, which is a bit of an eye roller. But um, so it has underperformed. And there's talk uh, that could Johnny Depp now return? I don't know if anything could possibly save this. Do you think? So this is a two prong question. Um, what has Mads Mikkelsen got to say in regard to Johnny Depp? And two, do you think we'll see more of these Fantastic Beasts films? I think that would be, as much as I hate to say it, the way to save that franchise. And you get those god-awful Johnny Depp fans return to the cinema and they would see this as a victory for them, very similar to how the kind of Snyder Cut thing went, where they'll flock back to show their support. There'll be a million god-awful TikTok videos as well. Mads Mikkelsen has said, you know, he, he's a big fan of Johnny Depp. He thinks he's a great actor and he, he wasn't trying to copy his performance. And he, he kind of alluded to the fact that, you know, he's won his car case. There's no reason why he can't come back now. And then he stuck, which was the most polite way of saying, I hate all of you people. He said his fans were very, very sweet, but very stubborn and sometimes intimidating. I didn't under, it, I didn't interact with them too much, which is basically the way of saying they were hounding the Christ on me. And I want as far away from this franchise as humanly possible. Johnny Depp and the rest of you lunatics can take this and run it into the ground for all I care. Poor old Mads Mikkelsen, you know, I mean, there's his uh, Danish charm coming to the fore. Chris, Fantastic Beasts, uh, this series, do you think it's uh, it's time to put it out of its misery now and just end it as a trilogy? Because it could finish as a trilogy. Yeah. Oh, it could. Yeah. Um, look, are we that far removed now from, from the last Fantastic Beasts that we can maybe spoil uh, something from the ending? Uh, well, do you know, maybe. What? cover your ears if you don't want yeah. to know what happens at the end. Right. Look. So we're going to give you a good fair warning. It's going to be a massive spoiler here now. So you have been warned. The ending of uh, Secrets of Dumbledore. So here we go. Uh, Chris, uh, I'll count you down. You can do your reveal. Three, two, one. At the end of The Last Fantastic Beast, you literally had uh, Jude Law's Dumbledore almost walking into the sunset or walking down New York Street, the snow falling on him. And you're thinking everyone was fine. You know, balance had been restored and there was a wedding and, you know, everyone was happy. And, you know, Mads Mikkelsen's body had disappeared. And, well, you know, obviously he was going to come back at some stage, but everything for the time being was grand. You could say that even though David Yates and J.K. Rowling and the team at Warner had five films planned, if they wanted to or if they had to, in other words, if the film didn't make, you know, as much money as they thought it was going to make it, box office they could say well we only ever planned three in the first place you know five was just a pipe dream look that trilogy has ended but it's not the end of the wizarding worlds they will find a way to resurrect that in some other shape you know maybe a series on hbo max maybe you know a, a sort of a harry potter reboot there are definitely going to be more wizarding world films but i don't think we're going to see a continuation and i also think that mads mickelson's comments about johnny depp coming back i think they've not that they've been taken out of context but he just was kind of i'd say it was you know, uh, an off the cuff remark about, you know, well, look, he won this court case and he is, you know, planning out, you know, the, the the next stage of his career. You know, he's beginning to reinvent himself. He's already announced his next acting job. He's going to direct his first film in 25 years, which, you know, we'll come back to another time. That came as a surprise to me because I had no idea that Johnny Depp had actually directed another film. But he's doing all these things now. He's not going to take over the character. Warner are not going to give that to him. That was mm. way too much of an embarrassment for everyone involved. So I don't think we, we, we should take this seriously. And I also don't 
don't think we should expect any more of the Fantastic Beast films. But there will be more Wizarding World films. I would bet everything I own on that. If I could jump in there for two seconds as well, just because we um, interviewed Dan Fogler at Dublin Comic-Con uh, a couple of weekends ago, and he was actually saying that he would love for there to be a Jacob and Queenie spin-off series on HBO Max. And as far as he knows, that the two, are, the two films are still in the works, but if not, then he would love to do a spin-off series on HBO. Oh, Here's- that sounds that sounds horrible. Uh, <laughs> the only reason I say that as well is because th- those two characters, they got their happy ending in that first Fantastic Beast film, which was as close to perfect as you can get in terms of the whole Harry Potter saga. That was their story was so lovely. And it feels as though they have just stretched the life out of it ever since. And it sounds so, like Dan Fogler is just trying to put out an idea, hoping that it'll get picked up. Yeah, because yeah. with the greatest respect to him. What has he been doing? Like, you know what I mean? The balls <laughs> of fury. And there was this horrendous wedding crashers bargain bin knockoff that he made called Wedding Bros or something like that. I'm like, good luck, Dan Fogler. Well, but he was in The Walking Dead. He's, he's in the offer, the Godfather and, thing. And he's in the offer. Yeah. Well, he's flown very much under the radar. It doesn't I, matter. <laughs> Gordon and I don't like this idea. <laughs> <laughs> he's in one of the biggest shows on TV. Well, whatever, world. Andy. <laughs> Whatever, I haven't heard. But can I just throw something like this right? This probably would never work, right? But the 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 is it the cursed child or the cursed child? You know the 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 stage play, mm-hmm. um, which is essentially like the big sequel when we see Harry and Co as adults. I would imagine Warner would love to make that, but the cast, like Daniel Radcliffe, none of them want to return for that. Would it be impossible to do that without them? Just recast it. I think you could you could definitely uh, there will probably be a film of that at some stage. But the the thing about the cursed child is that 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 is still making a fortune on stage, and you know that is still selling your tickets left, right, and center. So maybe there is some deal in place that you know, look, what's the point of putting this? You know, it'd be like making a Hamilton, you know, a proper Hamilton film at this stage, not just like a, a film stage version of it, which is the, which is the one that we got. You know, don't show too much of this to, uh, uh, to, to to audiences because then they won't pay tickets to see us. Do you know what I mean? Because there is that thing where, you know, like people are, people are still flocking to see this on that one stage. If you give it to everybody, then maybe, you know, they might lose interest. Yeah, I would actually just add to that as well, because with the, um, even when they released the book the same day that the, the, uh, the stage show went live, there was a lot of people being like, why are you releasing us like the entire script when, you know, people could just go and see it. And they're like, well, yeah, but we're booked out for an entire year. So yeah. we might as well just cater to everybody else. But then even if you know the story for a play, you're still going to go and see it and enjoy it because that's like a big spectacle kind of thing. Mm. So I'd say it is going to be a case of once the spectacle has lost its charm, but um, um, then I'd say they might try and move it to another platform to try and get people engaged again. But as long as it's still like at the top of its game, they ain't going to do anything to just uh, to jeopardize that. And look, we've seen it. That play is also genius because you have, to, you have to go and see it two nights. So even the play of it is split into two parts. So you can't Unless you go for the matinee on a Wednesday as well. <laughs> is <laughs> that right? Oh, I never knew that. So you've you got to go see it over two nights. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's like they're both two and a half hours or three hours long or something like that. And I think there used to be a case of that like on a Wednesday, part one would be the matinee and part two would be the evening thing. So you could actually spend like six, seven hours in the, yeah, in the, in the theatre. Dear Lord, twice. Genie Max, I tell you, and with the cost of West End tickets. Um, just finally, finally, one of my favourite films this year has been Brian and Charles, which I think is just such a sweet, lovely film, which uh, at its root is all about loneliness. But it's got buckets and buckets of charm. 
And uh, it was based on a, a short film from 2017 of the same name. Now, Andy, you got to speak to the villain of uh, Brian and Charles, Jamie Mitchie, who plays the the bully of it. And the thing is, he's such a good bully. He's, he really is. You recently chatted to him. And, and how did you find him? I was very annoyed because he's kind of ruined the film by being so nice. That said, he is a Liverpool fan, so he's not all grey. Um, hey! <laughs> yeah, I got to interview him for a new show called Wedding Season. And of course, I couldn't let it without mentioning Brian and Charles and, and how much we absolutely hated that character. And as you'll hear in the clip, I awarded him our first, our inaugural and prestigious cinematic prick of the year, which he was, to be fair, was very happy to receive. <laughs> Let's hear it. I'm kind of happy that the, the interview is being done over Zoom, Jamie, because I'm genuinely don't trust myself in a room with you. And the reason for that is Brian and Charles, because <laughs> I never wanted to hurt anybody as badly. I, it was... I had a visceral reaction. And even today saying I was interviewing you, we've had like a, a group chat and I've kind of every week put in who we're doing. Yeah. Every response is, now you tell him that I said, if he touches a hair on his head again. Oh God. And we actually on the show decided that you were the cinematic prick of the year. Wow. Because, what was it like working on that and having, as I'm sure you've had, like every reaction I've had that people are just like wanting to absolutely kill Eddie. I mean, Eddie's just so horrible. He's, I mean, he's just, but like, not, you know, like, he, he's just, he, he's sort of like, it's perfect bully, isn't he? You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, uh, and like, because they sent me the script and they sent me the short and I was like, oh, I have to do this. I absolutely have to do this. And we were about to start before lockdown happened. And then we had to wait like six, seven months or something like that. And by that time, I was like, he was in my bones. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and I was just, just wanted to just, just play with them. Do you know what I mean? And uh, we had so much fun making that. And and I, I just had so much fun playing that part. Yeah, I'm so slightly disappointed you're so nice in real life now. I really am. It's ruined the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, maybe that's a that's a nice compliment in a way. So, yeah. uh, like, you know, thank you, and I'm, I'm thank you for seeing the film as well because you know it's a special movie. Yeah, it's actually up until this, it's uh, the film of the year so far. So, and I can't see an awful lot beating it. <laughs> Mark Commode said the same. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in a steam yeah. company then. <laughs> Ah, oh, that's brilliant, Andy. Fair play, and I'm glad he took it in a in good stead. Like he he wasn't in any way thrown by by such a, a prestigious award. No, we need to work on a, on getting an actual physical trophy, but I think we'd be very dodgy what that would actually entail. <laughs> <laughs> that's absolutely brilliant, guys. That's our roundup of uh, movie news this week. Um, but now we're going to move on to what is worth watching, and uh, we have um, House of the Dragon, which is the prequel series to Game of Thrones, which takes place 300 years from the events of the Game of Thrones series. And this is all about the fall of the House of Targaryen. Uh, Matt Smith, I feel sorry for Matt Smith, this poor man, like, you know what I mean? Ever since Doctor Who, he's been, he's such a great actor, but sometimes he aligns himself to projects, which sometimes feel like they've been cursed, like Terminator Genesis, um, uh, Morbius. He was in that. And there's something else he was in. Oh, yeah, I think it was a, a Rise of Skywalker. I think he shot stuff for that and it got edited out. But House of the Dragon. Uh, Chris, you've managed to see some of this. So one of the main directors of Game of Thrones is one of the showrunners. And, right, I'm just kind of wondering, is there much of an appetite? Because we all know at this stage, the Game of Thrones, uh, they really made a ham-fisted approach to the ending and they tried to speed things up, I, th- I thought, uh, the, the two, um, two showrunners. 
Uh, their names should escape me now. DB Wise and the other fella. But um, it was almost as if the, the lore of Star Wars was too much because they were approached by Lucasfilm's Kathleen Kennedy. They're going to get their own trilogy. And it was a real case of quickly, let's finish off this Game of Thrones and we could get set to work on Star Wars. And everything felt rushed and it, it left everyone with a bad taste in their mouth around Game of Thrones. And then fans are annoyed with J- George or R. Martin because he just won't get the finger out and finish off Winds of Winter. Like he's been talking about finishing it. Would you just finish it? Like, like you, you, you have... It, this man needs to get his act together. It, it becomes very frustrating when he is taking so long. Like he has, uh, how would I, how would I put it? Um, he, he has a, a, a note to the fans to finish this, but anyway, but does anyone care now, Chris, at this point about house of the dragon? Because if they don't get this right, I can't see them making any more game of Thrones spinoffs. Yeah. I think the people who care about this project the most are the people behind it. Uh, and you're right. DB wise and David Benioff, when they were making that final season of game of Thrones, and I was a fan of game of Thrones, not a super fan of game of Thrones, but I watched it and liked it and had problems with it like everyone else. Um, but when they were making that final season, you know, they did have one eye on the exit because they've been given, you know, it might be, you know, hardened Game of Thrones fans might, you know, be annoyed at me for saying this, but it was almost like they'd already been given a promotion. They were given the keys to the Star Wars universe, as you say, and they were thinking about what they were going to do with that. And so the job that they currently had, they just thought, well, look, we'll, we'll phone this in. And it's no secret that, you know, even the people involved in it, you know, you had everyone from Amelia Clark to Peter Dinklage raising their eyebrows at some of the things that their characters were required to do in that final season which was rushed and also somehow managed to be bloated and just you know uh, characterization was thrown out the window in in favor of this you know misplaced spectacle it was it it just a lot of it didn't really make any sense uh with house of the dragon this is actually uh, there are a number of spin-offs in the work i mean even kid harrington has his own john snow spin-off in the work at this stage that he actually came up with the idea for himself um but i'm not sure if this is the second third or fourth project that was announced after Game of Thrones. What I mean by that was, wasn't there another spin-off that actually made it to the pilot? Yes, Naomi Watts had shot it. And they they made the pilot. And then the powers that be at HBO went, nah, nah. I think think Naomi Watts must feel like she's cursed because she's made Diana, which was a disaster. Then she was in that book of Henry, another disaster. And then she made that film for for Sia. Uh, Remember that? It was all about autism. And that was... absolutely dragged over the coals and then she wasn't she was in the game of thrones prequel that never even made it to air yeah i think uh warner spent around 30 or 40 million dollars on that as well so it's another uh they need to they need to stop putting things on the shelf over there in warner i'd love to see what they're keeping in their vault but uh with house of dragon i mean there is an enormous amount of goodwill behind it some people haven't expressed you know goodwill but maybe not interest but some people have expressed an interest in seeing you know what the story of the house targaryen is like you know 200 years as you say before the events of game of thrones and it does sound kind of intriguing but i've I've watched the first few episodes and I haven't been blown away. In fact, there are times where I've, where I've just been sitting here thinking, this is bad. This is quite dull. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a much more intimate, uh, you know, it's a smaller story that takes place over a series of years. Um, but you don't have, you know, that Game of Thrones magic where there are 17 or 18 things going on at once. And if you don't like this plot, we'll scoot on over to this one and then we'll go on over to uh, Jon Snow and see what he's at. We'll come back to Amelia Clark. You know, you, you had your favorite characters and you had the subplots that you weren't all that interested in, but it was such a huge world. And at times it felt like a real world as well. You know, you could see that they were making this in a real world environment. Oh, you know, doesn't Croatia look lovely? Doesn't Northern Ireland look very glum, but also beautiful? With this... It's one house, it's one family, and the people that were watching 
they don't have all that, you know, God, they do an awful lot of chatting, Gordon. They don't have an awful lot of interesting things to say. And the story is very, very simple and stretched a bit too far, I think, in that, you know, these are the final days for the House of Targaryen. And uh, Paddy Constantine's uh, King Viserys has been kind of, you know, he has this, you know, he's the one wearing the crown, but it's almost like he never wanted to be king. And the story follows, you know, his kind of a quest to find his heir because he has his daughter, but, you know, he needs the male heir. And it's all about the fact that, you know, his wife wasn't able to give him a son. What's going to happen? Well, you know, his heir might actually fall to, you know, his, you know, the heir might actually be his brother, played by Matt Smith. Unfortunately, Matt Smith's Damon is a bit of a, a sociopath. So who's basically going to take the throne and, you know, who's going to die while trying to take the throne? And it sounds interesting, but there's just a bit too much yapping going on. And 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 the, I am not- shocked that the writer of Hercules and Rampage isn't able to deliver something interesting for you, Chris. There you go. There you go. Uh, look, I won't I won't go too far into it, you know, because we're going to be getting one episode a week. And as I say, I've seen a few of them at this stage. But what I will say from the opening installment is that, you know, you do have a good cast there, but I'm not too sure if they're the right people to play these characters. There, there's a big question mark there for me about Paddy Constantine. And, you know, if he's, he's such a terrific talent, I love this guy, but I'm not sure if he's right to play you know the big king figure in a game of thrones no. series and you know the great respect to paddy constantine and he is as you say a wonderful actor there just yeah. always seems to be a bit of a dark cloud hanging over his head and there's something about the targaryens where they do all seem like a bunch of narcissists and i don't yeah. really know if paddy as much as the he is this a, a king that doesn't want to be king and of course so he's probably got this imposter syndrome going on but at the same time i'm going i never would have put paddy constantine in there one thing i just want to quickly ask chris just before we move on yeah is one of the things that Game of Thrones sometimes would come under fire for was sexual violence. Do we see, um, like, are there real controversial moments of violence within this Game of Thrones spinoff? Because obviously with the original series, it was littered with scenes of very, of like a pretty heavy handed violence. The makers in advance have come out and said that there there won't be scenes of sexual violence depicted in this Game of Thrones series. But they didn't say that they wouldn't have any violence whatsoever. And my big problem, certainly with the first installment, is is that it is nasty. And unnecessarily so at times. There are scenes in this first episode that I really could have done without seeing Gordon. And, and, and I understand that, you know, people are here for, you know, the, the, the drama and the, you know, the blood and the gore and that, you know, the, we're talking about warrior. There, there are scenes where warriors go to battle and there's all sorts of carnage and people want to see this stuff. I'm not sure if the kind of stuff that you see in the first episode is, is the kind of stuff that fans would be happy with. And there, there is, there, there are a couple of scenes, but there's one towards the end where uh, uh, King Viserys's queen is giving birth to what he believes is going to be the, 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 the male heir and there are scene and and there it it's just it's gratuitous what we see and i don't believe that you know you have to show you know such horrible things in a fantasy series in order to get your point across you know you can do you can be you know the series could be an awful lot more powerful if you just suggested things rather than showing it so okay. the level of violence the level of gore it it just didn't sit right with me and then also if we could just if we could just quickly mention i said earlier that you know with game of thrones you could always see that it was you know it was filmed in these beautiful locations you are never not aware that we're on a film that we're on a film set with this with this series and I don't know where all of the money has gone. Like I'm, I'm looking at it thinking, well, that's clearly a film set. That's terrible CGI. That looks like a video game. Oh, I, no. I, it's, it's gone. It's gone wrong. It's not, it's not, it's not aggressively bad. It's just, it's aggressively dull. 
And and I, oh. I just I I just and also nasty at times as I say I just couldn't get on board with it. Oh, well, if I could just def- can I defend it because I did enjoy it. I went into this knowing that it was going to be a political drama and not a Game of Thrones action left, right, and center sort of thing. So. For me, it was kind of exactly what I sort of expected. It doesn't have the same oomph as Game of Thrones first episode, but it definitely has like a lot of the world building going on. So I actually think that people just need to give it a chance and let it build as opposed to it needed to like hit you right in the face, like from the offset. Yes, that scene that Chris mentioned was horrific, but overall, like it is still enjoyable and fans of the series and fans of the characters will be interested to know what actually happened and what went wrong. Okay, so it's on Sky Atlantic. Um, if you have that from August twenty second, on Sunday. Um, just to move on, uh, another big series which is uh, released this week is She Hulk, on Disney Plus, and like this is very much one of those derivative Marvel characters. But by all accounts, Andy, they're trying to play this for laughs, and I don't know. I just the scene that they released where you have the character of She-Hulk almost talking down about uh, Captain America. I just went, oh, this just seems like such a cheap shot. I was like, I don't know if I can get on board with this. And Mark Ruffalo seems like he's smiling, smiling away, probably thinking of the, the lovely paycheck that um, has just been uh, processed into his bank account. I don't know. I, I, again, She-Hulk, any interest? Yeah, I've seen the first three episodes of this and it's just, bleh. there's so much tell don't show to it like there's scenes in it where she's saying like rather than show you know how difficult it is like a working environment like there's a really clever show and it's done really well in the comics you know this idea of you know a woman in a man's world and then all of a sudden the tables are flipped and she's got like essentially all the power but it's not it's just saying it over and over again and it's beating you over the head with its message the detriment to the story there's a scene in it where like the, the Hulk is essentially teaching her how to be a Hulk. But she's like, I don't need to do that because I'm already perfect in every way. And she literally like rips up the Hulk rule book and my eyes rolled so far back into my head. I thought they were going to stay there forever. It, it's just a pile of nothing. It's one of those things you'll watch and by the end of it go, that has added and taken away absolutely nothing to the MCU. It was just... The, the only merciful thing about it is unlike Falcon and the Winter Soldier series, which to me is the, the worst thing Marvel has done. The the episodes are 30 minutes long. It kind of breezes along. Just the odd kind of laugh. It's very digestible, but very forgettable. Like this is the thing, though, with a lot of the Marvel series. Like Loki has been a huge success for them. But like Olivia, are they treading on very dangerous territory here? Because at the moment, um, phase four has been less than stellar. Like I... Like I like yeah, I know people go, ah, oh, but Chang Chi was was great and all that, but yeah, it was all it was all right. Like it, like there's been nothing really standing out, and I think Marvel just seems like it's on a bit of a slippery slope. Um, could they be in a bit of trouble here? Like I granted, I know uh, one division might say, oh, that was a bit of a standout Loki, but I don't know. It uh, I, or maybe if I got it wrong, is it, are are they in any little bit of trouble? Well, I get to do my favorite thing right now and say Andy is talking out his hole because. She-Hulk is actually quite an enjoyable <laughs> series um, because it is that tongue-in-cheek. And yes, okay, they go a bit ham on a few of the topics, but at the same time, speaking as a woman, um, it, there are certain scenes that they actually manage to tackle and topics that they address in a way that is still appropriate for the series, but also is appropriate in the real world as well. So there's a moment where like, she is 
a bit beat up and she starts getting hassled from these group of guys and they don't back down until she literally hulks out at them. And it's that type of thing of like, they, they're highlighting real things that women are actually going through, but doing it in a Hulk way. Um, so for me personally, I actually thought that they were doing it in a very clever way. I think some of the humor is really, really funny. I know that you that you didn't enjoy that little Captain America scene when you're actually watching it all in context. It is actually much funnier. Um, whereas it's when it's just isolated by itself, you're kind of just like, I know, where did that come from? So I don't think they should have released that clip because it is kind of giving the wrong vibe. But mm. overall, I actually think that there's a lot of positivity in this series. And I think for what it has to come uh, later on in the episodes, I think um, I think I've seen up to episode four or five at this point. Um, but it it definitely builds as it goes along. And then it kind of becomes more, you know, courtroom kind of hilarity shall we say but um for me i actually think that it's it's actually on the right track as opposed to the wrong track like andy said so once they now have like this whole plan in place you can kind of see where they're going with x y and z a bit more so mm-hmm. um, and actually when i was funny when you mentioned shang chi there is a shang chi crossover um in this as well so there's a lot of things that actually tie it into the rest of the universe which i think was very clever as well Okay, getting a split uh, decision here on We Love Movies, but let us know if you've uh, had a chance to check out uh, She-Hulk. Just get onto Twitter and include the hashtag We Love Movies. Well, that is our lot for the first half of the the show, but when we come back, we'll be uh, chatting about some other new film releases and uh, what else is available on streaming. So that's all still to come in the second half of We Love Movies. We Love Movies with Gordon Hayden on Spin. You are very welcome back to We Love Movies. I'm Gordon Hayden. I'm joined as always by Chris Wasser, Olivia Fahey and Andy McCarroll. We're now going to take a look at uh, some other releases this week. Chris, I just want to very quickly get your thoughts on a film starring Alan Cumming called My Old School. One of those stories which is stranger than fiction. And it's a bizarre story, but it's a true story. It is a true story, uh, and it's just it's it's a bonkers one. Um, we're de- we're talking about the curious case of Brian McKinnon, who was this wily Glasgow trickster. Um, and at the age of thirty two, back in the early nineties, he convinced the staff and pupils at uh, Beerson Academy Secondary School in Glasgow that he was this, you know, that he was just a, another teenager. Well, actually, he was a bit of a brain box teenager. And his story was that he's moved over from Canada. Uh, his name was Brandon Lee. And he, you know, arrives at Burson Academy a month after what had happened on the Crow set with the real life Brandon Lee. Uh, he said that, you know, his mom was a, a famous opera singer and had been touring the world and he'd been homeschooled. But they arrived here now and he was going to be living with his grandmother in Glasgow. And this is where he was to receive his education. There were questions raised about his appearance because he looked older, about his background, because I don't know if he ever presented any official papers, but nobody bothered, bothered to follow them up. And the weird thing then on top of this weird situation is that he he was he went on to become one of the most popular kids in schools you know he was the star of the school musical he was well liked by other students he was well liked by the um, by the teachers but one day they discovered that he was in fact a grown man who you know had hatched this plan had hatched this hoax essentially that in a desperate attempt to obtain a medicine degree which is what he'd always wanted he would pretend to be a kid again and go back to school and the whole thing just made international headlines back in the 90s and back then there were reports that alan cumming you know then uh, a much younger actor obviously wanted to uh, uh wanted to portray 
this guy, Brian McKinnon, in, in a feature film and also had maybe even gotten the job. But that film fell through. Instead, what we have is this very witty and, and incredibly inventive documentary made by one of the kids that this Brandon Lee figure went to school with. So you've got, got essentially all of these students, all of the, uh, the, the teachers who are now retired, you know, taking us through what they, you know, uh, and taking us through the story. And, and, and also, you know, we get to see then, you know, the fact that they can hardly believe that they fell for this, you know, really far-fetched fraud. So it's a tall tale, but, you know, McKinnon's classmates, they tell it brilliantly. And also one of the classmates, Jonah, McCle- Jonah McLeod, who, who wrote and directed the film, he integrates uh, uh, animation there in, in, into, into proceedings. Uh, you know, so we've got these playful animated reconstructions of the more, you know, kind of complex stages of the hoax. And also... Alan Cumming then comes in to deliver this tricky but effective lip sync over audio recordings with the real life Brian McKinnon, because for reasons best known to himself, he wanted to contribute to the project, but he didn't want to show his face on screen. But we do see it eventually. So it sounds kind of it sounds a little bit all over the place. You know, it sounds a little bit bonkers. It is. But it's also brilliant. It's surprisingly moving. It's very, very funny. And it's thoroughly engaging. It's probably one of the best documentaries I've seen this year. Oh, give it a score out of 10 then quickly, Chris. A good eight out of 10. Oh, there we go. My old school is the name of the film. Look, time is catching up with this guy. So I just want to very quickly move on uh, to Prey, which is also available on uh, Disney Plus this weekend as well. So you can get your She-Hulk and you can get your Prey. Prey's been doing incredibly well over the last few weeks. Been a huge hit stateside on the likes of Disney's other streaming channel, uh, Hulu. People can't seem to get enough of it. And it kind of caught people unawares because it is technically a prequel to Predator, a series which has had very spotty uh, filmography. The late 80s film, 87, with Arnold Schwarzenegger is a cracking little action movie. It's a kind of an action horror, really. It's a slasher, really, at its heart. Um, it has all those same tropes. But over the years, it's like they just have never been able to crack a decent follow-up. Now, some may say, ah, look, Predator 2 was a bit of fun. Then you had Predators um, with Adrian Brody, which is a bit meh. And then... Shane Black thought uh, he could save the day with the Predator and made it even worse, made it right pig's ear of it. And now we, and then we won't even bother getting onto the Alien versus Predator ones. But we now have this prequel. Andy, to me now, I've seen most of it. I, I must be honest, I, I, I'm going to catch the end of it now later on. But from what I've seen of it so far, I think the concept is better than the execution. Where does Prey stand for you? I thought both are done really well. I think it looks absolutely beautiful. It's one of the, the best shot films I've seen in a long time, which kind of makes me wish I'd seen it in the cinema as opposed to online, but I don't think it would have had as, as big a reaction as it is. I think, like you said, too many people have been burned by God off a Predator movie after God off a Predator movie, movie, movie even. But I, I really liked the, the premise of this. You know, we're going back to what, 1700s? Yes. And it's that's a right. narrow young Comanche woman. She's trying to basically prove herself in the tribe her and her dog Sari played by Coco who's a rescue dog which made me want to like the film even more and I the thing I really really enjoyed about this is she feels like a real character and this is one of the problems I had with She-Hulk where it's like she's never in any peril she's always the smartest person in the room. she never you know is under any duress here she gets the Christ kicked out where she makes bad decisions but she adapts to every situation and she's not this you know all-conquering action hero She's very, very relatable. Her performance is so kind of, so she's very clever in what she's doing. She's working out very similar to the way uh, the original Predator did with Arnie, where he was kind of learning what its weaknesses were. But you know what's also quite interesting as well, Andy, sorry to to butt in, but also the Predator kind of has a kind of a parallel type of story because this Predator is almost in training 
himself in that he seems a little bit out of his depth and he's got something to prove because some of his decision making just feels like a bit of a novice too. Yeah, he is. I think I'm sure, as you do know, could be the horror aficionado that you are. There's like five different types of predator. He's very much at the you know the start of his journey, and you see somebody with you know a laser gun and a mask and body camouflage should be able to take out you know a backwards tribe fairly handily. But he runs into a, a lot of trouble pretty much straight away. And again, that's part of what it is. He's not this unstoppable monster. We are looking at it going, yeah, there's no way she can be him when he's all these advantages. She is infinitely smarter and better or because she has more experience despite all their technology as well and I just really really it was just a nice B movie type of you know had a good story with a start middle and end it wasn't trying to set up you know something with the aliens it wasn't trying to set up you know 15 different films this is very much a one and done and I think for that it's infinitely better than pretty much every Predator iteration we've gotten since probably the second one okay I see the second one all right so Predator 2 you would put up there as sort of the pick of the sequels yeah i've seen people say this is better the best predator film and better than the original let's just let's calm down a small bit here now and then show respect to one to predator and then show a bit of respect to predator too as well great stuff well look if you're a disney disney plus subscriber you can see the the full predator collection there at the moment time is caught up with us thank you so much as always to andy mccarroll olivia fahey chris wasser for me gordon hayden thank you so much for your company we'll do it all again next week right here on spin 